beautiful job this morning, worship team. Thanks for the music and leading us into, into worship this morning. Let's pray together before we begin. It's always good to talk to the author before we look at the book. <clears throat> oh God, we do crave your blessing this day, a day that we kind of set aside for rest and realignment. Father, let us rejoice today in, the, in your celebration that we will find joy and gladness when we sing, when we take communion, when we look to scriptures, and when we fellowship with our friends and brothers and sisters here. We ask that uh, not only our body be refreshed, but our spirit as well. We ask that you give us the time today to regather our scattered thoughts and center them on you and ask for time to step aside for a little while to take in your calming spirit. May Jesus be our companion today in all that we say and do and think so that we may more and more take root, that he may more and more take root within our souls and that he be with each one of us and us in him. Lord, you are the source and the ground of all truth and you have opened up minds of people all over the world to discern your truth and, and your will and we ask for your truth to reign in this world and, and reign in our souls as well. Father, we ask that you give us wisdom to abstain from things that harm us and that harm others and to persevere into doing what is good and right in your sight. We ask now that the truth of your word take its proper place in our souls and in our minds and in our hearts. And we lift them up today that in spite of what we see and read on the news, that, um, that you will place in us a desire for you, an earnest desire, a longing for you in your presence, in your spirit as we sang about this morning, so that you live in us and us in you. And we thank you for the promise of Christ that is all and in all, and we take it and believe that by faith. Lord Jesus, you are the way and the truth and the life, and through the season of Lent, we ask that your love be rekindled in each one of us so that we might live sacrificially and holy for you. You said that, uh, you said, I live in a high and holy place, but you also live with one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. And so, Father, we come to you with contrite and, and lowly hearts and humble hearts and ask that you live with us today and always. And we ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're continuing in our series on the Trinity. I'm calling this the God of Israel freshly revealed as we uh, see it in the New Testament. And we'll be looking at the, the way life was meant to be. Um, and that's uh, kind of a tall order here. Most of us know the story of Genesis, the creation story. If you don't know it, you know, in details, most of us know it at least in general sense of what that's, what that's all about. Uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of us in the church and Christianity get so caught up in whether how to interpret it uh, literally or non-literally or whether it's a six literal 24-hour days in the creation or not that we kind of miss the point of the story. We miss what, what Genesis is trying to tell us. And then you have the, the, um, the secularists who just kind of want to keep God out of it altogether and they just don't want to even want to even deal with it at all together. But the point of the Genesis story is when it talks about creating humans, um, uh, man and woman, uh, there is a very, very relevant point here about this. And it's not just about 
the existence of material stuff, of material bodies, material universe, planets, stars, all that kind of things. We kind of get caught that that's all it's about, but it really isn't about that. It's not just about the material, about the, the physical stuff that, that we see every day. But unfortunately, we have, we have camped in on that, and it's kind of just assumed that that's all, it is, all it's about. And uh, Aristotle came along and is a philosopher, and he, he basically defined human beings as just purely substance, a physical being, a physical body who's able to reason. That was his definition of a human being. And unfortunately, we've kind of we've adopted that in the West, not really knowing anything about that. Uh, we think that that's kind of what human beings are. We're, we're, we're all caught up in the physical creation, which is important. But it's not the primary thing. It's not the primary thrust of the creation story. The thrust of the creation story is that human beings were created in the image of God. Amen. And that's what's important. And that's what is, that's, the substance is, is second. Aristotle said that the substance is first. And all these other kind of things of relationships, he says that's just sentimentality. And it's secondary at best. The important thing is the existence of material things, of material bodies. And the church even bought into this. And uh, Boethius is a Middle Age middle, middle theologian, middle, middle, medieval theologian. I got that out, spit that out. Uh, you get the idea. In the Middle Ages. He wasn't Middle Aged, he's in the Middle Ages, okay? <laughs> he might have been an old guy for all I know when he said this. Um, Anyway, he defined human being as this. A human being is an individual substance of a rational nature. And that's kind of what we've kind of adopted in the West. And uh, rather than, than really what it, what it is talking about. And then come the Enlightenment, and it just all went to seed. That's all we are, are rational beings. And that's not what, the, that's not what Genesis is getting at. That we are reflected in the image of God. We are created in the image of God. And that can mean all kinds of things, but whatever it means, it could mean we have free will, it could mean that we have reason, it could mean we have, have spirituality, but whatever it means, it means that we are distinct from plants and animals. Amen. And it also means that we are distinct from angels and any other celestial being that might be out there. It also means that we are distinct from God, we're not God, but it does mean we are linked to God in a very special way. Amen. We are linked to him. And what I think this is getting at, and when you look at the whole scriptures as a, as a whole, what I think this is getting at is that we have this, this, this God who exists in relationship. And it's the rela relationship that exists first. And creating us in, in his image means that we are created in a relationship. We are relationally created Amen. we are created to have relationships the new testament talks about the son the son of god jesus three times mentions that he was in the image of god he is the un uncreated son who is the agent of creation he is over creation john tells us that in the beginning was the word and the word and nothing came into being without him he is over god but then we are created we are created in the image and I take that to be that we are to imitate him. That we are the image of the Son. 
while the uncreated son, the second person of the Trinity, is over creation, we are created to work with God within the creation. And that this is this relationship that has spilled out and we are relationally created. And when we talk about being genuinely human, I take that as being that we are relationally created and we become genuinely human when we are fully known and fully loved by God. We become genuinely human. Now, that love is not always reciprocated. God never leaves. He is always there. He is always loving. But we don't always reciprocate. It is a love that is freely given, and it is a love that we freely receive, but we don't always receive it. In fact, we may often not receive it. Over and over again, we may not receive it. But he is always there. And my point is that we are relationally created. This is the idea of the Trinity. We are created with this capacity for relationship, this capacity for connectedness. And that's what it means to be genuinely human. And, And science and experience backs this up. That this this a capacity to relate to others and to relate to God is what makes us genuinely human. Science and experience this, uh, um, backs this up. I, I have an article that I saved from the New Yorker, I think it was printed about 10 years ago, but I have it saved in my files, and it talks about people who have been uh, locked away in solitary confinement. And it talks about uh, John McCain, and most of us know who John McCain is. And uh, he suffered incredible torture, both arms were broken, a leg was broken, another arm was broken later again, which caused him to have a disability in one of his arms. Dysentery, he lived in a 15 by 15 cubicle, and the only, way, only contact we had with other people was tapping, and he suffered dysentery, all kinds of physical torture. But this is what he said. He said, it's an awful thing, solitary. It crushes your spirit and weakens your resistance more effectively than any other form of mistreatment. What gets at the human being is to isolate them from everyone else. The story tells another, uh, the article tells another story of a man named Terry Anderson. He was a journalist for the Associated Press and he was kidnapped in 1985 by some terrorists in Beirut. And he said, this is a direct quote from him, okay? Um, He's writing about this experience. He says, the mind is blank. He says, Jesus, I always thought I was smart. Where are all the things I learned, the books I read, the poems I memorized? There's nothing there. It's just formless, gray, black misery. My mind's gone dead. God help me. We are created with the capacity to relate, to connect. And that is fundamental to our humanness, to being the human being. Now, I always thought that the idea that that the universe, the world, stars and planets just popped into existence, I always thought that sounded fishy to me, okay? And and it does. Whether whether you're religious, Christian, or whatever, that just sounds fishy to me, that all these things just popped into existence out of nothing. That just doesn't sound right. But apart from that is this creation of human beings with the capacity to relate, with the capacity to love. And I believe that what the, the genuine human being is the call for us is to participate in this triune relationship, this three-person trinity, that we participate in this relationship with, with God.
And Jesus broke through all that, and he told us about it, and yet I think in the church, in the Western church especially, we sort of have failed to, to ground this truth in the Trinity. And the Trinity has just become just a math problem, like I mentioned last week. It's just a math conundrum that we debate, we talk about, and we have to, we agree with it when we say the Apostles' Creed, but really, you know, it doesn't really affect me every day. But I think it is a, a, a deal breaker. It is a paradigm changer to get grasped into this, to know that we are participating in the fellowship of the Trinity. And this is what I mean. This is what I think he means when he says we are created in the image of God. We are created with this capacity to love. It could also mean free will. It could also mean a sense of spirituality. It could also mean uh, um, the, the idea of, of having a, a re, being able to reason. But I think getting down to it, this is what it means, that we are created to imitate the Son and participate in the same relationship in the triune God, in the Trinity, that we have this eternal relationship with God. I, I've said this over and over again, that you probably get tired of me hearing it, but the book of John is all about the new creation. It starts off, in the beginning was the Word. It's just like Genesis. And he, John is telling us how Jesus has come to start this new creation. And we see that the world has just, yeah, it has just gone to be a, a mess. And this is not the way life was, supposed to, was, life was meant to be. It was not meant to be like this. But John is saying that, this is, that God is, is beginning a new creation through his son, Jesus Christ. And through him, everything was created. You get to the end of the book, after Jesus has risen from the dead, what does he do? He's with his disciples and he breathes on them. And he breathes on the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're thinking Genesis, and you know Genesis in the background, that should remind you of Genesis 2-7. The Lord God formed the man from the soil of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man becomes a living being. Amen. This is the Holy Spirit. From the very, very beginning, the Holy Spirit has become part of us, and we have been created with this capacity to form relationships. We are relationally created. And to be a genuine human being means to be fully known and fully loved by God. That's what it is to be a genuine human being. But we know that life is chaotic. And you may be sitting there going, okay, this is great, Tommy, but this is all abstract stuff still. It's all up in the cloud. It's all in my head. And I can live in my head. Okay, that's all good. That's all good. And that's fine. But what about real life? Well, we all know that life is chaotic. We all know that life is going to be a chaos. And we know that these relationships are important but, you know, we have siblings, we have parents, we have children, we have friends, we have co-workers, we have teachers, we have students, and we know that all these people actually cause me a lot of grief. A lot of chaos is going on. And then you throw in things, that, you throw in things like financial needs and and uh, deadlines and all this kind of stuff and you have this what I really need and then what I really want and those things are, and then the people you're dealing with they also have that conflict of what I want and what I really need and all that and it just becomes just just you know a challenging at best and all-out war sometimes uh, in the worst-case scenarios but we have forgotten that the Trinity is our rooted identity Amen. this is where we this is where we plant our feet that, that God is not the God that comes and goes. He is the God who stays. And, and his image is in every single person that we come in contact with. Every one of us Amen. 
has that image created in them. Even the guy across the street with the political sign that you disagree with, he too, he too is created in the image of God. And if we can capture that, we can, we can handle this chaos and we can redeem it. We think that the only way to get through it is to either eliminate it or tolerate it. Well, Christ wants to redeem it. And redeem means simply to buy something and return it to its original owner. And so when we experience chaos and conflict, that robs us of something. And Jesus comes along, the, the, the triune God comes along and buys it back and returns to us what was stolen from us. It's the, the redeeming idea is the same idea of going to a market, a slave market, and somebody buying the slave and then setting them free. That's what Christ does for us, even in the midst of this chaos. And I wanted Rob to read Ephesians chapter 1 because that's what it's all about. This is the life as it was meant to be. Paul, too, is a new creation theologian. Every letter he writes, people say Paul or Christ, follow Paul. Every letter he writes, Paul puts Christ in the center. And starting with chapter 1 in Ephesians, he just goes on with this, this list of all these things, the way life was meant to be as genuinely human beings. When I, was, <clears throat> I had a student once at Pueblo Bible Seminary, <clears throat> it turned in a paper, and, um, and I read two typed pages before I finally came to a period. One sentence... Two pages, you know. Well, I couldn't get too mad at him because he was probably imitating Paul. Because this whole section that, that, that Rob read is one sentence in the Greek. One sentence. It's almost, like he, he, it's almost like he was out of breath. And he couldn't stop. He was going on so much that this is the way it's supposed to be. This is what Christ has done for us. If you want a great exercise in your own study, take Ephesians 1 and 2 or Colossians 1 and 2 and just start making a list of what God has done for us. It's a great spiritual exercise. And that's kind of, you get the feeling you get with Paul in chapter 1. It's just this, this is the way life's supposed to be. It's this, this, this. He says we are adopted as, boys, as, as daughters and sons and daughters, as children. He says we are, uh, we are uh, blessed beyond measure, that uh, we are chosen for something. He says we have been given grace upon grace. We have become, we become, he calls Jesus the son, the beloved. And he says we have become the beloved. And he gives us this purpose that says everything is going to come together at the end. All the, all the kingdoms and all the lands will come together under Christ, under Jesus Christ. And this will be our inheritance. And then he goes on and says you too have heard this. Now who is this you too? Who is this you also? Well he's speaking to Gentiles. Because what he's doing here is he's taking this, this whole story of Israel and bringing it all together and it converges on Jesus Christ. Amen. It converges on him. And he said, yes, this is a Jewish story, but they weren't chosen because they're special. They were chosen to be the vehicle. They were chosen to carry the message. And it all converges on Jesus Christ. And he said, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles too. For you Ephesians too. For you Oregonians too. And even you Texans. It applies to you too. You too are all brought together under the inheritance. And now we have this purpose that we are also the bearers of grace. We have been chosen to be the bearers of grace. We have been chosen to be the temple of God. 
to bring about the rescue of the world. It's not just a purpose because we're special. If we've been given a task, and he says that all this comes together in this huge eruption of celebration, he says. And we all do it for the praise of God. Praise of the Father. Why? Because the Father is so insecure, he needs our applause. Yay! No. It's more like this spontaneous reaction. I don't know if you've ever been to a concert or not where the artist actually does the song everybody's waiting for, you know, and, and everybody jumps up and screams and starts clapping. I, I've, I've seen Linda Ronstadt twice, and I used to have this thing for Linda Ronstadt, okay? <laughs> Uh, I told Sue when we were getting married, I said, Sue, I will never leave you unless Linda Ronstadt can't live without me. That, I might have to give it a second thought. I don't know. But I've seen her a couple of times, and when she breaks out in Desperado or um, Silver Threads and Golden Needles, you just see the crowd just, you know, erupting in applause. It's just an ecstatic thing, just a spontaneous thing. They just do it. Or if you're into classical music, if you're listening to an orchestra, and the orchestra reaches this, this climactic moment, you know, and it comes to this bang of an end, and the crowd immediately lifts up to their, lifts their, stands on their feet and starts cheering. That's, what, that's, the, that's the picture we have here in, in Ephesians chapter 1. That everybody's there jumping up, celebrating, clapping, applauding. That this is so great. Because it's rooted in the triune God. I need to move on here. Um, <clears throat> This is the way life was meant to be. It starts with the creator. And then Paul takes all these narratives and brings them to, together. To say, this is how it's supposed to be. So what does it mean to be genuinely human? What is, I'm just going to mention four areas quickly of what it means when we talk about being genuinely human, being fully known and fully loved by God. What does this do to us when this happens? What does it do when we become temple people? First of all, it gives significance a different look. It makes significance look different. We all have this urge to be significant. We always talk about wanting to be something, be a part of something bigger than ourselves. And, and so we, we look for something. And the problem is the things that we think are significant, that make people significant, it's out of reach for 95% of us. Okay? The things that we think make people significant, whether it's a, an actor or an actress or an athlete or... A, uh, a politician, and we think that person is significant, and I'm not significant, but at least, you know, that, it's out of reach for me, and so what we do is we, we attach ourselves to that person, and we become invested in whether that person's breaking up with their spouse or not, or whether they're da who they're dating, what movie they're going to, or, or what athletes are doing, and, and when I was young, and it became obvious that I was not going to become a wide receiver for the Dallas Cowboys... I, I attached myself to that team. And I always used to say that, that my masculinity on Monday depended on what the Cowboys did on Sunday. <laughs> I was that tied up with whatever they did. That's how I got my significance. And that's so sad because that's what we do as, as Americans. We, well, it, it's cross-cultural. We attach ourselves to these things because those are, we, I can be significant if I attach myself to this person or that person. And what's worse is then we start to feel insignificant. And being genuinely human changes what significance looks like. According to Genesis 1 and 2, 
We are significant just simply because God has called us into existence. We are significant because we can now be called sons and daughters of the living God. And if we understand that, if we grasp that fact that we are to resemble the sun and reflect that sun to the world, then, then life begins to appear in a whole new light. We have a whole new view of what significant means because we do it for him. We are called significant simply because he called us into existence. That is enough to make us significant, that God called you into, into being, into existence. Being genuinely human brings peace of a different variety. At the end of the, at, at the, end of the as Jesus was moving toward the, the cross, he tells the disciples, you know, you're going to have a lot of trouble in this world. Stop being troubled because I give you peace, but not as the world gives, but as I give. It's a different kind of peace. Usually when we think of peace, we think of, 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 of termination of hostilities. If we're praying for peace in Ukraine, we're basically praying for a truce. And even on the personal level, we're basically just asking for a truce if we want peace on the personal level. But this is a different kind of peace. This is an internal peace. Because there will be hostilities that will come back. They will, they will start up again. We will start doing them again. But this is something inside. This is an eternal, internal peace that Christ gives us. The world just gives us a peace that's basically a truce. And the only way we can eliminate hostilities is to eliminate people. And so we don't want to do that. That's even worse. But this is something different. Uh, Sue was telling me her favorite gospel is the book of Mark. Because uh, he, she says it's, it's also compact. Very few words. And that means every word's important. And Friday, she says she was reading the story, you know, of Jesus crossing the lake and the storm comes up. And she says before they, she noticed that before they got in there, it says, Mark says, the disciples decided to take him with them. And she goes, that's a pretty good idea. Always take Jesus with you. <laughs> if you're getting ready to cross the lake and there's a potential for storm, take Jesus with you. Amen. And he'll bring peace. And then she said, then they woke him up, and what they expected him to do was to help them out with what they always do. And that's kind of what we treat Jesus. You know, just help me do what I'm already doing. And Jesus has something else totally in mind. That his presence brings us this eternal peace. Jesus was able to face the cross, face the abandonment of his friends, his closest friends, because of his relationship with the Father. And we imitate the Son, and we face the troubles because of our relationship with the triune God. We share in that relationship, and it brings us a piece of a different variety. Being genuinely human points work toward a new objective. You ask people why they work, and they'll say, well, to pay the bills. But I bet you anything, if we were to say, if money were no object, would you continue to work? And I bet almost all of us would say, yeah, I would continue to do something. I would continue to work. It's more than that. It's more than just paying the bills. It's more than just putting food on the table, even though that's part of it. There's something else about it, whether you're making spaghetti sauce or whether you're, you're designing software. There's something important about this, and he gives us this objective as a new objective is to glorify God, that we do it for him. You, 
people will say, oh, you, you Christians, you guys believe in grace and, and it's all, you know, you say you, there's nothing you can do to earn salvation or earn your works or, or earn, earn favor with God and stuff. So why do anything? Well, it's just part of us. Because we are here to bring grace to a hurting world. We are here to, I, I would say that anybody who has been captured by the words of Jesus, they are anything but passive. They are anything but apathetic. And, I, and Harriet Tubman to me is a perfect word picture, perfect example of this. She was the conductor of the, of the, of the Underground Railroad during the slave days. And when she escaped and got her freedom, she was a deeply, deeply faithful person, Christian woman. And when she escaped and got her freedom, what did she do? She dedicated her life to free others. That's what we do. When we get our freedom, when we receive this, this love, and we participate in the Trinity, we help others be free. We do that for others. We have the privilege not only of sharing in the love of the Trinity, we have the privilege of sharing in the work of the Trinity. And that's across the board. I had this friend that I worked with in, in youth ministry. He's, and I love him to death. And uh, he he's, was one of the guys in the volunteer who volunteered for everything in the church, which when you're on staff, that's wonderful. I think that's great. But one time he told me, he says, oh, that work, that's just what I do to, put, to buy groceries. You know, my, my real life is right here in the church. And that's admirable, but I'm thinking the majority of your time is basically just spent wasted then. His work is every bit as much a part of the kingdom as his work in the church. Every single bit of it. The objective is new. And finally, being genuinely human puts human relationships on a different plane. And we, that's kind of what we've been beating around the bush around uh, all morning, is that if we are created just simply out of substance, then it, what, man, what difference does it make? But we are created out of a relationship. We are created out of a relationship of God that exists in eternity, of eternity love. And without that, if it's just substance, then there's no growth, there's no movement, there's no mirroring of Christ. We don't reflect the image of God back to the world. It's just a dead end. It puts our relationships on a different level. I read a story a while back about uh, a CEO who came in, I think, and I'm trying to remember this, I was trying to remember this week and I could not find it. I think it was J.C. Penney's, but it could have been Sears, but he came in, a new CEO, into the department store, and he thought, hey, the free market system really works with competition. So let's do it on the store, individual store level. And so he created this system where it was highly competitive among the employees. What happened? The store went bankrupt. The store just completely closed. And they, they've struggled ever since then because the employees couldn't trust each other. They weren't working with this common goal. They were at another level. They became competitors rather than co-workers. And the free market system works if your goal is to raise money. But if your goal is to, to do something together, that doesn't work very well. This puts our relationships on a different plane. There is no hierarchy. There is no competition. We have one goal. We have one purpose. We have one reason.
God is a free being. And his first free act was to call us into existence. And that is reflecting the triune God. We're not just some material being that can reason and, make, and reason out problems. We are there to relate. We're not objects. God never treats us like objects. We're not zombies, half living, half dead, who walk around and just obeying whoever happens to be in charge. He treats us like people who were created in his image. Amen. And he's in the business of making this new creation to fix it the way life was supposed to be in the first place. John 4, 1 John 4, 16 says that anyone who lives in love lives in God, and God lives in him. If I'd said that without repeating John, you would say, oh, that guy's just a sentimental old man. <laughs> or maybe he's just a new ager from California. <laughs> but this is John. This is the Bible. He's saying those who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And that's not just to cause us to be cozy. It's also a warning. Because love doesn't build walls like this monastery where we're all safe and sound. It calls us out. It tears down walls. It calls us into the, into the wildlands to go after people to love them, to offer them freedom, significance, and grace. It's a dangerous thing. It would like to be cozy, but it isn't. And so we need to be all in. We need to be all into the Trinity, reflecting the relationship, reflecting that love, that triune love, all in. When I say all in, I mean all in with your doubts, all in with your uncertainties, all in with your uncompromising convictions, all in with your nonconformity, all in with, with on the days you do believe and all in on the days you don't believe. All in. Living in love, and God lives in him. And the greatest love of this Trinitarian God was when he put God in the middle of this messy, dangerous world and entered it as a tiny embryo implanted in the uterus of a teenage girl who was born a hungry baby looking to nurse and then growing up as a man who drank at weddings and cried at funerals who had a real human heart that stopped beating and then rose from the dead Amen. which is where we're going with Easter. That's what the Trinity is saying. That God exists in relationship and he has created us in a relational way so that to be fully human is to be fully known and fully loved by God. 